turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel 15 now so that you're ready when we actually get there. Uh, but last weekend, uh, I was out with a few others in our church, uh, Chris and Carrie Yee, uh, the uh, always famous Scott Guidry uh, and Rosalind Miller. Uh, we were in Vancouver, British Columbia. There's probably a photo of us, uh, a little selfie, uh, or there's the first one. I'll talk about that. So you notice there, this is our worship time. Uh, if you can see it, uh, the worship is in three languages, English, Russian, and Farsi, which is the language that is spoken in Iran. And the church that we served, Westland Baptist, they did a, their retreat for their Thanksgiving. Their Thanksgiving, Canadian Thanksgiving, was last weekend. And uh, we're in this retreat center, Camp Luther, uh, out near Van Vancouver, British Columbia. And their church is a melting pot of people uh, from all over the world. Uh, and as exam uh, exemplified by this worship, uh, this is uh, a shot of them uh, during worship. Again, you can see the three languages. Uh, on the screen uh, and there during worship. We had the opportunity to work with their children uh, during this weekend, kind of long weekend retreat. Uh, we did a kind of a vacation Bible school type thing. And uh, you can see there, they're working on uh, construction projects and hard hats and decorating. Uh, Scott and Rosalind uh, taught them the song, You Are My King, uh, in, uh, but not only to sing it, but also in sign language. The young lady you see right here, this little girl here is a Ukrainian refugee. She's been in Canada for two weeks. And the young man next to her is also Ukrainian, and he knows English, and he is translating for her on the fly the whole time, uh, trying to help her enjoy uh, the weekend and understand what's happening. Uh, we played a Bible game where you had to... Uh, if you stepped on the letters, if you have a first grader and you've been with Mr. Scott, you, your kids know this. Uh, but if you jumped, it's a letter, then you have to say a book of the Bible. Well, she would just run across all of them and the other people would just shout out Bible books. It was so much fun. What an opportunity for us to, to share with the family. Uh, the next slide you see is actually a group of people. These three folks here are Ukrainian refugees. Uh, the one in the middle uh, is the, the mom uh, and all all three of these people are deaf. Uh, they're Ukrainian refugees who have just moved to Canada. Uh, the guy on the far right, two weeks he's been in Canada, the other two, four months. Um, and they were doing, we had a little talent show, and they did a sign language to a, a Ukrainian uh, folk song that they know. But the church uh, and at Westland Baptist, it's in North Vancouver, uh, they are doing a tremendous work to welcome these Ukrainian refugees uh, from their country. There's one family, there's our team. Uh, there's, a, there's one family in the church um, who the dad was born, he's Russian and Ukrainian. He was born in Australia, but he grew up in Vancouver. And he and his family have uh, welcomed in two additional families. There's 18 people living in their home uh, right now. And half of them are deaf, hard of hearing. Uh, and just a great gift of hospitality this church uh, has and a, a wonderful picture uh, of what heaven will be like for us. There was one of the ladies, uh, one of the Ukrainian refugees who was on the trip who accepted Christ uh, during the retreat, which is awesome and amazing. She has a wonderful story. We did a, we did a, there was a prayer time every morning and on Sunday morning, uh, uh, Monday morning, uh, we had a time and she came to the prayer meeting and she asked to pray. She had just accepted Christ the night before and asked to pray. It was a beautiful 
simple and broken English uh, prayer. It was, it was wonderful to be a part of that. And so uh, I want to I thank you, number one, if, if you're a faithful giver to the church, you helped make this trip happen, uh, but also you're a part of this. And as we move forward, we look ahead uh, to a few weeks to our Thanksgiving dinner that we're going to have at the Family Life Center. Uh, every year, if you've been around here for a while, we take an offering uh, a Thanksgiver's offering, again, because we're so original. Uh, Thanksgiver's offering. And this year, that offering is going to support three different ministries. Uh, the 4B Disaster Response Network, which is a local disaster recovery uh, response network that was formed uh, after Hurricane Harvey. Uh, For All Mankind Movement, which is a, an international missions organization that plants churches primarily in India, Pakistan, Nepal, uh, in countries where Christianity is less than 2%. Um, and so they're reaching those countries. And then Westland Baptist, uh, the church we work with, because they uh, are doing everything they can to reach these Ukrainian refugees and encourage them, show them the gift of hospitality, and show them the love of Christ. Uh, and so this year, that's what our Thanksgiver's offering will go to. Uh, you'll have opportunity to give uh, on November 6th uh, at uh, the Thanksgiver's meal. Or if you want to go online in advance, you can do that. There's a little drop down uh, on, on our website side that says Thanksgivers. Uh, and so it's, we try to make it simple. But it, it was an exciting week. Thank you for praying. Uh, and next time we go, we'll all go together. And maybe we'll have a retreat one day and we'll do a talent show. And you can display all your cool talent. It'll be fun. Well, uh, we're going to jump into 1 Samuel 15 today. And I'm going to talk fast. We've got to move fast. Um, but, but the scene here in 1 Samuel is... Um, Samuel tells Saul, the king, to go do something. And, and the reason he's supposed to do this is because 400 years earlier, 400 years earlier, this group of people led by Amalek harmed the nation of Israel. And God held on to that for 400 years. He withheld his justice from the Amalekites for 400 years. And today, God is going to exact his justice and his judgment on this people who harmed the nation of Israel. And he's going to use Saul to do it, or at least he thinks. And so that's the scene that, that God is about to tell Saul, the king of Israel, to do something and we're going to see how Saul responds to that and then what happens to Saul as a result. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt, again, 400 years earlier. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill them, both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. God is going to exact precise judgment on this nation who has rejected his people, rejected him, who is sinful, and he's going to destroy them. He desires to destroy them. And so Saul summoned the people 
and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah, 210,000 soldiers. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay, waste, lay, lay wait in the valley. And he said to the Kenites, this other group of people, go depart from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So there's a simple task. God, through Samuel, tells Saul, destroy the Amalekites. Everyone, everything, to the ground, burn it. That's my command. And so Saul takes his 210,000 troops, he gets the Kenites out of the way, keeps them safe, and he goes in and destroys the city except for the king and all the good-looking sheep and all the nice fat calves and all the oxen that you can't see their ribs. I'm just going to keep them. He does 80% of what God asked of him. Have you ever done that? You calculated what is the amount that I actually need to obey God to get away with it. That's what we have here. That's the scene. I, I, I'm going to try to do just enough to make it okay with God. I'm not going to do it all, but I'm going to do just enough because I, you know, I need a little on the side. I like veal. I like cotton shirts. He doesn't do it. And then he goes so far as to, to build a monument to himself for this great victory he has. And Samuel has something to say about that. Let's pick the story up. In verse 12, and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told, it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Isn't that what we do? We do something halfway and we brag about it. That's what he does here. And Samuel said, God is a funny God, full of humor. Samuel said, what then is this bleeding I hear? What is the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Malachites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. 
Not the Lord my God, the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. You ever done something and like, hey, look how good I am. And you've sort of kept something as a, as a prize, a trophy, as a memento of how cool and awesome you are. Like maybe it doesn't matter to anybody else, but it matters to you. Because it's a reminder of, of how awesome you are. That's what Saul is doing here. He's keeping all the fattened calves and the oxen and, and the sheep as sort of a trophy to himself. And then he builds a monument and tells Samuel, hey, look at what all I've done for God. Completed his commands. And Samuel, even though he's an old guy, he has good hearing. Because he hears the sheep, meh. As they're having that conversation. I don't know how an oxen lows. I don't know what lowing sounds like. Probably like a moo. What is that I hear? Wow, Saul, you are so amazing. You did what God asked you to do, but I can't help but hear what's happening over here in the corner. Now, I don't know how good you are at thinking on your feet, like in the moment, like if you've been caught or you got to get out of something, how quick you are with your tongue. But Saul is fast. Oh, yeah, Samuel, these are the sheep and the oxen that we brought for sacrifice to our great God, your great God. And everything else is going to get destroyed. Oh, by the way, that was the people's idea. It was their idea. This is a tremendous, a perfect, a wonderful example of what happens when you and I Do almost what God asks. It's a perfect example of what you and I look like when God tells us to do something and we do it 92%. When we're not really disobeying, but we're not really obeying, which means we're disobeying. And so if you didn't know this already, I'm confident all of you do, but just a little reminder that disobeying God always leads to excuses. And the beauty in that is that excuses usually always lead to blaming others and sometimes lying, which Samuel, Saul did both of, blamed others and he lied. When we disobey God, we're going to give excuses Excuse might be to God, might be to your parents, might be to a teacher, might be to a coworker, a supervisor, a neighbor, whatever. But when you and I sin, our natural response is to give an excuse, and usually that excuse involves somebody else. It was them. They made me do it. It was a CEO who was retiring. And on the way out, he was welcoming the new CEO in, and, and he said, as a, as a welcome gift, I, I want to give you three envelopes. Take these envelopes as my gift to you. 
And there's going to come a day when, when you make a mistake, there's an error in judgment, whatever. I, I want you to, when that day comes, I want you to open the first envelope because I'm going to help you. This is my gift to you. And then there's going to come a day where you make a second mistake, a second error in judgment. You, you, you mess up. I, I've given that second envelope as a gift. And then one day, you're going to make a third mistake. It's hard to imagine today, but you're going to make a third mistake, and I want you to open the third envelope. And so sure enough, the CEO begins his tenure, and things were running along pretty good for about a year or so, and then all of a sudden, he messes up big time. Oh, what am I going to do? The envelope. So he works in his desk drawer. He pulls it out. He opens that envelope. Number one, it says, well, I see you've made your first mistake. It's okay. Just blame me. Oh, what an idea. So he folds the envelope. He goes to the shareholder meeting boards. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I, yes, it's terrible, but uh, you know, I've inherited this company from this guy and he just left it in shambles. Like it's going to take us a while to get it straight, but it's, it's his fault. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to fix all of his mistakes and I'm not going to do it perfectly. Okay, everybody, well, okay, we're going to move ahead. About two years later, sure enough, he messes up again. Well, I got to go to the drawer again. <laughs> Envelope number two. He opens the envelope and it says, hmm, I see you've made another mistake. It's okay. Blame the board. Okay. Good advice. Puts the envelope up. Makes his press release. Ladies and gentlemen, you know this has been two or three years of transition. It's been a difficult time. We're trying to turn this company around. But the board that I'm working with, they don't know the left hand from the right hand. They don't know which way is up and down. It, it is a struggle to lead them well. But we're getting there. We're getting there. A few changes and we'll make it happen. Just give them some patience. Hmm. Uh, okay, we can do that. And two years later, as you might guess, he makes a third mistake. He goes to that drawer, he opens the envelope, and it simply says, prepare three envelopes. <laughs> if you don't get it, ask your parents later. That's how we are. We, we want to blame everybody else, and we don't want to take ownership. And that's where Saul is. He wants to give excuse. And it's this half-hearted attempt at humility with Samuel that digs his hole even deeper. Because if you turn the page to verse 22, you see the result of his sin. In verse 22, Samuel tells him exactly what's going to happen because of his sin, because of his disobedience. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Those calves and oxen 
and sheep are nice, but I'd rather have you follow after me. To obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. He has rejected you from being king. And so Saul says to Samuel in response, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I'm going to stop us right there. Samuel listens to Saul's excuse and his grand plan of sacrificing the animals to honor the king, to honor the king, the Lord. This is kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for God related to Saul. Samuel tells him, thank you for playing but you're done. Because God's desire is obedience. Not fat calves, not a great offering, not, not come and buy my way into your good graces. No, I, I desire obedience. And not obedience as a dictator, as someone who, who is this sort of cosmic dictator and would rule over you. No, the one who loves you enough to pay the penalty of your sin and your transgression and your rebellion by sending his own son to die for us. That's why I desire obedience as a response of love to my great love for you and my care and my compassion, my, my keeping your hand from the time of Egypt all the way till now, from those days when your life was filled with shame, I've redeemed those times. And now I desire obedience. Saul didn't really want that. He wanted his way. And even in this moment, he sort of gives this half-hearted still, I've transgressed and I listened to the people. He's still, even in this confession, blaming the people. Have you ever been there? We're like, you're caught red-handed and you're still doing everything you can to pass the buck to somebody else. That's what he's doing. Saul is in deep trouble here. His kingship is over. It's done. And the passage here continues going that, that Samuel actually went so far as to cut the tassel off his robe to indicate that his leadership was done and that he would not be redeemed. But finally, Saul comes to his senses and realizes, oh man, I, I'm, I'm sunk and so he pleads with Samuel. He pleads with him, please, please return with me. Please, don't turn your back on me. Don't give up on me. And Samuel, in a picture of what God does for us, relents and says, okay. And he returns with Saul. It's a wonderful lesson here that Saul, though he had messed up royally, he had 
disobeyed God in a dramatic and significant way, there was still grace for him. Still grace. He was no longer going to be king, but he was still going to be part of the family. He was still going to be a part of the nation of Israel. He was still going to be part of God's chosen people. God didn't give up on him. What God would do was prepare in those days his replacement, the rightful king of that day. But if you ever wonder if God is tired of you, done with you, you've messed up too many times, that's a lie. That's a lie. There may be grave consequences to your sin, but God does not give up on you. He's a God of pursuit, a God of love, a a, a God who takes dry and broken and shameful things and puts them back together, and that's what he will do for you and me. And so Samuel has to do what Saul did not do. And he takes care of Agag in a not-so-nice way. And if you want to see action movie stuff, read the end of chapter 15. But once Samuel tells Saul that he's removed from king, it's now God's agenda to go replace him. And he does that with a little old kid named David from Bethlehem. And so look at verse chapter 16, verse 1, and, and see how God is, is turning even the heart of Samuel. He says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Saul was devastated, right? Because Saul was supposed to be Samuel's adopted son, like the one kid who would, who would make it right, and he, he messed up. How long will you grieve Since I have rejected him from being king, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I've provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears, he will kill me. And the Lord says, take a heifer, not the ones from Agag, okay, a different set. And say, you have come to sacrifice and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And so Samuel did what the Lord said. And he goes to the house of Jesse. And they bring the first ones up like, hey, is this the guy? Nope. Seven times. Seven guys. Seven sons. Is this the one? Nope. Is this the one? Is this the one? No, every time. Because what the people were looking for, what even Jesse and his family were looking for, was the right kind of look. They already made that mistake once in Saul, right? The tall, good-looking guy. They they needed to do something different. And so look at verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. For the Lord sees not as man sees. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. He worked through all these guys. You got anybody left? Well, yeah, we got the one kid out in the field with the sheep. And it's funny to me, this passage was just spoken. The Lord looks at the heart. Man looks at outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. And they talk about David. And what do they say about David here in 1 Samuel? They don't say anything about his heart. He's ruddy. He's kind of got a reddish complexion. He's good looking and he has beautiful eyes. They missed the point even right here. After it was spoken, I know we never do that. We never miss the point, do we? Ever. But sure enough, God chooses David. And in verse 13, Samuel took that horn of oil that he had been carrying and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The Spirit of God rushed upon David. You know that David would not become king for 15 more years. 15 years David would wait to become king. God told Saul, your kingdom is finished. It's done. But that actually didn't happen for 15 years. But God's hand was removed from his kingdom. That's a place that I don't want any of us to be in. Where God has removed his spirit from us and we don't recognize it. Because we're just going about life. Only paying attention to ourselves. Not surrendered to him. Not a person after God's own heart. And so David had to wait. God had promised him that he would be king, but he had to wait. He had to wait. Ever had to wait on something? Ever had to wait and just be patient and trust that God was going to see it through? Be encouraged today that God's delayed promises are not denied promises. That promise that he's given you may not happen today. It may not happen in five years. It may not be 10. It may not be 15. But God is faithful to keep his promises. And God had promised David that he would be king, that he was the anointed one. And so you and I think about, as you and I think about these two guys And we're going to dive a lot more into David because we all know he wasn't very perfect either. There was an attitude difference between Saul and David. David was a a man after God's own heart. He, He lived a life of surrender. Even in his sin, he lived a life of surrender and recognized his sin. And Saul didn't. 
And so my encouragement for you today is that you and I would be people who live in obedience to God. That we would live in surrender to his will, that we would follow his commands because they are commands of love. And that we would live desiring not to do most of what he says, not to do some of what he says, not to be okay most of the time, not to pay attention to God on Sundays only, but to live a life surrendered to him and not make excuses, not be a people of excuse. And the second thing I would want us to take from this kind of this scene is that you and I need to trust God with the timeline of our life. We need to trust him with the timeline of our life. He is a good God who sees you and knows you. He desires great and mighty things, things bigger than you can imagine even for yourself. And so trust him. Trust him. He's a good God, and so I want to trust him. I'm going to trust that his timeline for my life is perfect. And I want to live in obedience to him because I know of his great love for me. Let's pray together.